What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris. And today we have the pleasure of talking with Anusha Hossein about her brand new book. It actually just came out yesterday and it's called The Pain Gap. So check it out. There, there are so many problems. There are so many problems with healthcare for women in the United States. Like healthcare, we've talked about it before on this podcast with different books and, you know, uh, different issues going on in all these different communities. But something that I realized, you know, a while back is that, you know, women, they have all these issues with healthcare and it's, it's, you know, from sexism, there's, you know, racism, there's all sorts of things where medications aren't being tested properly. Women are not being, you know, communicated with effectively by physicians, surgeons, and so many other things. And that's why when I found out about Anusha's book, I was like, I need this book. So she was kind enough to send me an early copy and I'm so glad I had the pleasure of talking with her. And honestly, I think this is one of the more important books because this is a topic that often goes overlooked. Um, any of you who have been listening to the podcast for like more than five minutes, you know, we talk a lot about psychology and like these biases and all sorts of things. And this happens a ton within women's healthcare and what Anusha talks about in her book. And we dive into it a little bit in this conversation is that women are literally dying right? And women are avoiding certain procedures or, you know, not comfortable talking with doctors. So we talk a lot about that from different topics of her book, but we also talk about some solutions. So like I said, this is such an important book. It came out yesterday. Anusha killed it with this book. It's great. She is a journalist. She's a feminist, so she's an awesome writer. She really cares deeply about these topics. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation and make sure that you are following her over on Twitter. That's linked down below. And make sure that you grab a copy of her book, The Pain Cat. It just came out yesterday. People are loving it so far. I know I did. So make sure you grab a copy. But before we get started, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul so you don't miss any upcoming episodes, uh, different projects I'm working on. I've been writing a ton. So make sure you're following me. And if you're new to the podcast, if you're brand new, we do a ton, a ton of episodes because I read like a crazy man. So this is like our 106th episode. We just started in May. We have over 100 episodes. So make sure you're following the podcast or subscribed on whatever platform you're listening on because we're doing episodes all the time. We have some more great episodes coming this week too. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Anusha Hossein about her brand new book, The Pain Gap. Hello, Anusha. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for sending me an early copy of The Pain Gap, which is your phenomenal book that we'll be talking about today. I loved it. I thank you so much. That makes me so happy. I am smiling if you can't hear it on my <laughs> So for, for those who have yet to have the pleasure of being introduced to you. Can you give like a little, a little bit of your background? What do you do? What are you all about and stuff? And then we'll dive into the book. That is a great question. Well, my name is Anusha Hussain. I was born and raised in Bangladesh. 
Uh, and, you know, I came to the States for the first time when I was going to college here at UVA. But I am a um, journalist and political analyst. And I guess now I should say author. Somebody yeah. said that to me the other day and I was like, that's me. Yes. Yeah. And so I am author and political analyst. And The Pain Gap is my first book. And my jam is kind of anything to do with um, gender. And mm. right, I'm kind of a professional feminist and I try to bring the feminist and gender lens and really now racial lens to uh, mm -hmm. anything that I do to my political commentary, to my op-ed, to my writing. And um, the book is kind of, I mean, a culmination of just, I mean, I've wanted to write a book since I was like 12. There was yeah. a point in my life where it was becoming so hard that it's so hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially like being parents and stuff like that. Like I was like, I need to get this done. I've been trying to be a public writer since I was like 12. Well, I have been a public writer since I was 16, but I, I to have a book. Um, and it was funny because at one point, like 10 or 12 years ago, maybe it was 20 years ago, I was just like, how does Paris Hilton have a book? <laughs> I don't have a book. I'm no, so it. Sometimes I, I look at authors and, you know, I, I would never know, but I'm just like, I'm like, did you, you actually write it. this or, or you got a ghostwriter? You know what I mean? <laughs> like Paris, Paris may be sitting at her laptop, you know, busting out words, but you know, who knows? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Who knows? I know. <laughs> so, so with, with the pain gap, like, uh, and, and yeah, you wanted to write a book forever and stuff, but like what? What kind of in inspired this? Was this like around like stories that you were covering or was it even the pandemic? Like you, you talk a bit about the pandemic in here, but this is about, you know, healthcare as it affects women, right? So when were you just like, I need to write about this topic? What inspired it? Well, everything for me with healthcare in America really starts with America's maternal health crisis. It starts mm. with, you know, me almost dying in childbirth here and then discovering that America had a maternal health crisis. I actually wanted to, and, and the worst maternal health crisis amongst rich nations, actually mm -hmm. more dangerous to give birth for women now in America than it was for their mother's generation. That number is rising. It is atrocious for women of color, um, mm -hmm. with women of color being two to three times more likely to die giving birth in America than their uh, black or brown counterparts. But for black women, even if you're educated, actually your chances of being, uh, you know, not making it in labor in America is the more educated you are, you're probably five times more likely to die in childbirth. But that number for African-American women is 243% more likely to die mm -hmm. than their white women in America. Yeah. So uh, it was just about, I just wanted to talk about that. <laughs> yeah. The book was going to be about that. But then COVID hit and my agent was like, nobody wants another book on like another health crisis. Because I wanted to say that, you know, America's maternal health crisis is our next public health crisis, which it is, by the way. Now it just combined, merged with COVID. Yeah. Um, so I had to rework it and uh, which was fine because. You know, there's this quote that's so cheesy, but it's so true, which is trust the timing of your life. Mm. And I really couldn't have written this book at any other time because between um, the racial justice movement that happened last summer with Black Lives Matter and mm. the, pandemic, the pandemic kind of exposed my um, thesis. Yeah. <laughs> which was that there's major racial disparities in the American health system. And I think pre-COVID, we were like, we had the luxury of maybe debating racism or 
pondering it or people get so offended when you say yeah. that like oh maybe it's racist yeah like oh, my pearls um so that was it was really interesting because it, it really had to be kind of now so it ended up being you know um my publisher was telling me that it's the only book that covers anti-asian hate black lives matter the pandemic yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it 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 covered so much and like you said i i think the timing was perfect because like i i am personally like hey let's get let's get healthcare for everybody you know type like when bernie was running i'm like yeah that sounds pretty good to me right but then with the pandemic like even before the vaccines like we're all sitting here like am i getting who's who's paying for that you know what i mean and yeah. and yeah like yeah. you said like with the with the combination of like black lives matter and the pandemic and just so many things we're seeing to healthcare. but i said this in my review of your book too and like one of my favorite parts is like if if you know there's like if you see that there's a problem like that white women or even white people are facing you can almost guarantee it's works for people of color and it's like yes right and 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 i think a great example like i'm a recovering drug addict like i got sober in 2012 and you know a common conversation is nobody cared about the addiction epidemic and still it started hitting like the white suburbs i'm like exactly you know but we see it and and you know that's that's where I personally get conflicted because I get it like I get that you know we need to be more proactive for you know all these you know uh, different communities and everything like that. But I try to be glasses half full. I'm like, thank God it's happening to you know white people now because now there's more of a you know maybe maybe other communities will benefit because they're like oh well you know it's killing these people over over yeah. here. But I've I've personally seen you know, some of these issues, cause I'm half black. And so some of my family members deal with some of these things. And even when you're talking about, you know, women of color and, you know, the, the maternity issues, like, here's my question for you too. Like I, I, I've had authors on here from all, all ranges of the spectrum, right? Like people were like, oh, you know, racism isn't that big of a deal. And then, you know, here it is. And I'm just, I'm like a numbers and statistics guy. Right. And like, you were talking about like, hundreds of percents more likely yeah. and i know you discuss a little bit of biases in the book but like why do you think people just deny the reality of what's going on what do you what do you think is like the root of that when they're faced with like these numbers how do they just brush that off that is such a great question and it happened to me the other day it happens to me <laughs> a lot and what is what i love about this book is there's a lot of data and research yeah in it it's not just me being like let me tell you this theory like a lot of what women's rights advocates have been saying and women's health advocates and reproductive rights advocates have been saying and raising the alarm for for years really just kind of came to a head um during the pandemic but people i, I write about this in the book it's really hard to talk about race in america as i mm-hmm. the hard way <laughs> and when it kind of became undeniable last year we had to talk about these things and really in the course of the last two years you know removing these statues police brutality i mean it still became hard i mean you know mm-hmm. what somebody said last year was it wasn't just last year that black people started getting killed by the police we just have video now and people still don't believe it <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah this happened to me the other day where this woman was interviewing me and she said I mean, I know that it's really bad. And of course, if there's racism, do you ever just think that it could have been just like this one story? And not only did I know that she didn't read my book, mm-hmm. <laughs> entirety, uh, but I was like, no, that's the point. If you yeah. look at it, maybe, okay, one story is a one-off. Why are there so many stories 
And statistics are matching that. I mean, last year, the American Medical Association and the CDC said that racism in America is a public health crisis. To that, I want to add um, that not believing women is a public health crisis. Mm -hmm. Because something that really interesting happened in the course of my research was that I was like, why are there so many stories? Every woman has a story. Every woman has a story. Some story of medical misogyny or not being believed and then end up being something much more serious. Or mm -hmm. they know a woman. They had a friend. So at one point, I was like, there's too many stories. And mm -hmm. I think it's just normal to not be believed <laughs> by yeah. the doctor. Because there's so many stories. Like, maybe that's just the norm. And then I was like, oh, why are there so many stories? And it's kind mm -hmm. of global. Um, and it's, it's not. It's so funny. At one point in the book, I asked, was it always like this? Mm -hmm. Where women just not believed about our bodies. And it's not just about our pain. It's about when we've been raped, when we've been mm -hmm. groped. Uh, anything to do with our bodies. Women are not believed about our bodies, our pain, our stories. Uh, we're not mm -hmm. considered reliable uh, witnesses. So I, I think that was, um, that was another thing that I had to really come across. It, it's global. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, you know, like I, for example, today, like after this interview, I have an interview with an author later and his whole book is about uh, you know, like detecting like good versus bad science and really like, you know, because as you're, you're a writer and you got to like, look at like, okay, this study, what was the sample size? How was the data conducted? Like, and I try to do that just as an average guy, but anyways, there comes a certain point where it's like, cause anecdotal evidence is very weak, but there comes a certain point where like, I'll hear these statistics about like sexual assault or, you know, whatever it is. But then I'm like, why is it that 90, like 95% of the women I know have been the victim of some sort of sexual assault. And I'm not talking about like, oh, they're at work and someone like grabbed their app. I'm talking about like Rape. sexual assault. Yeah. yeah. So at that point, I'm like, okay, so maybe this is, you know, something we should be looking into. But, you know, so so when it comes to like, you know, believing women, you dive into like the, the medical aspect. But like, so I, I'm, I'm a huge psychology nerd and in, you know, in the history of psychology, like there's like hysteria, right? Yes. Yeah, there's like people the original who were... title of the book was hysteria. Yes. Really? <laughs> yeah. I want to about my favorite word. Yeah. So, yes. so did you, you might've talked about this in the book. Did you come across? Well, yeah, you do. I have a note right here. The history of hysteria. Did you come across like any psychological reasons or was this like massaging for not believing women about their pain, about their emotional yes you know, issues like why, where did this kind of come from? So fascinating. Well, that was like one of my key questions. I was like, was it always like this? Were women yeah. just not believed? Were we always brushed off as, you know, um, crazy emotional creatures? And the answer is yes. Like yeah. 4,000 years of research on this from like the uh. ancient Egyptians to the Greeks, to, to major thinkers like Socrates and Plato. I mean, everything for women and women's health. Well, first of all, we were always an afterthought from whatever mm -hmm. we're studying for men. And this is actually, even in modern day, we have with heart disease, which is kind of really thought as a male disease uh, when really it's women and women of color uh, that it's the leading actually health issue for in, in the States. But yeah, from the Greeks to the ancient Egyptians, to Freud, to the NIH, women have always been um, not only kind of written off as hysterical, when we're telling you, when we're becoming emotional about anything, um, but also, uh, I mean, it's been going on for so long. I mean, Plato and, and Socrates 
and Hippocrates (laughs) thought actually that um, everything with women was about the womb. And that when when we became hysterical is because the womb wasn't in the right place. The womb was like bouncing around in our bodies. And I think Hippocrates called it uh, a wandering animal. He had a wandering womb, an entire like theory. Um, So not only were we reduced to our reproductive organs, which we still are, but yes, it it, it has always been like this and it still is like this. So that is, that is a problem. In fact, a big thesis in the book is to flip our hysteria complex because a lot of women don't want to be seen as hysterical. So we either try to tolerate our pain. We don't, we don't want to speak up when something's wrong, but in the book I say, let's flip that. And instead mm-hmm. of being afraid of being, you know, viewed as hysterical, let's use that. Let's use that really racist history and legacy to yeah. advocate for ourselves now. Yeah. So you, you're discussing a book, you know, like, uh, like women of color are more trusting of like, uh, you know, doctors of color and things like that. And yeah, so something new I came across. Yeah. Well, so, so me with my mental health background, I, I just had, you know, an interview with an author the other day and we were talking about mental health in the black community. And you talk a lot about yes. trust and like, you know, obviously those issues with vaccination rates and, you know, uh, these communities and stuff like that. But, you know, there's, there's reasons for this, this trust, yeah. like, you know, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, you know, doctors of color or even, female doctors right i i i'm wondering like do you see less of this not believing women like like for example if if there's a woman doctor and she has a a a female client who comes in talks about her pain does that doctor not struggle with as many issues as like a man might or are they contaminated by some of the biases from their training and and stuff like that that's a great question and it's definitely the latter i mean i had a lot of women who were handling me it was, ended up being mm. a male doctor, but it's uh, who didn't believe my pain. But there were a lot of women <laughs> who passed me over uh, before I even got to that man's operating table. But um, yes, this is actually something I found. There is research. I, I mean, obviously, it's not always going to be a good situation because women doctors are in a very misogynistic, sexist field. Yeah. Um, but the the other thing that I found was that there are studies now saying that black women are more likely to survive and their babies are more likely to survive when they're treated uh, by by doctors. I think their uh, chances of survival go up significantly. So this was mm. a major study um, that just came out. And then in my interview with one of the doctors I was talking to, she said she does that. That is something she recommends to her patients and she's an african-american woman she's a doctor herself but Mm. the difference it makes you know she's been taking her son to doctors uh black doctors his whole life you know he's 13 now so i was really shocked uh to hear that but then of course i'm like that makes so much sense (laughs) yeah and over the summer my parents were really sick and um you know they were in the states and just just by coincidence um i had found you know two muslim doctors cardiologist and neurologist just happened to be and then one Japanese specialist and it made such a difference I was shocked I've lived in America for like 25 years more than 25 years and I've never seen that you know just uh, the compassion they had when they saw that I was there with my parents they met with us for like an hour went through everything um it was just it was very different and it was you know I mean this book is not anti-medicine and anti-health care yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's it's and more it's like bringing up awareness and yeah yeah and we can fix this you know I, I say this in the book too 
that, you know, earlier this year I was in Bangladesh and I was visiting my dad's constituency and uh, a Bangladeshi woman asked me this. One of the rural women's leaders said, it's so great you're writing this book in America. You know, what impact does that make for Bangladesh? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I, she actually, you know, it's like I didn't have an answer. I was kind of like, that's an excellent question. And then I thought, if women in the richest democracy in the world don't get it right, we're all so screwed. Yeah. We're all so screwed because yeah. not only will it matter symbolically, it will matter through U.S. foreign policy, which, by the way, impacts the lives of women and girls around the mm-hmm. world. Too. Most Americans don't know that. So it, it matters here. It matters yeah. so much. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to I'm going to rant to you real quick. And so like when we're talking about like, you know, uh, uh, people of color seeing like doctors, you know, with their same like, background or beliefs or whatever it is. Like there's there's a lot of like debate right now, which is ridiculous around like, oh, so you're just trying to segregate people and stuff like that. And so just like me, me as a recovering drug addict, I worked in treatment. Right. And I'm not a licensed professional or anything. I was more like a peer support person, but I ran groups and so many addicts would come up to me and say, Chris, I love talking with you more than the other therapists because you've been through it. Right. But, But I see this across the board, no matter what, what. Your, your races, no matter what, uh, what, what kind of job you have, right? Like my mom is a psychologist. She runs a treatment center and they have special or specific groups for cops because cops want to be around other cops because cops understand, right? So why is it so hard for that to make sense? That's so, because, you know, uh, when we're talking about people of color, like just going back to mental health, like the stresses and the anxieties that yes, they experience. The racial going, stressors. I yeah. mean, can I tell you for black people, like this isn't a book on like black saving or savior or anything, but yeah. there's nothing I say in the book that black people don't already know, but my God, the African-American experience in America for everything. Yeah. Healthcare, education. I mean, I feel like most black people are going to pick up this book and be like, thanks lady. Tell us something we don't know. But um, that is a major indicator, too, right? I don't want to hear about it because for and for so long, you know why America's maternal health crisis wasn't front page news everywhere? Because that that question would drive me crazy. I've been trying to answer that question for years and now I have the answer to it. Yeah. Which is in the book. And it's because the face of America's maternal health crisis is a black woman. Yeah. And people don't care. Yeah. And by the by the way. Personally, like reading your book, I, I thought it was I thought it was really good because, uh, you know, the other book that I was, you know, interviewing author about, like the racial stuff, it, it it came later on. So it doesn't come off too preachy. But also, I would argue that it does benefit, you know, people in the black community, because I would think, right, with the vaccine hesitancy, for example, yes. I think especially younger people. Like, I am just now learning about, like, I've heard of the Tuskegee experiments, right? But I'm just now learning about it. So I think younger people will be like, oh, this is why my my parents or my grandparents, or my parents, you know, so, yes. so I do think there is some stuff that they'll yes. learn. So hopefully they don't just brush it aside. saying that. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a really great quote by um, a doctor in the book where she, she was in the vaccine trials and she was having these flashbacks. And he wrote, she said, it's not that we, um, we have this history. It's not that we're just scared. We remember mm-hmm. yeah. like, there's real history there and real stories there. And I mean, 
I always used to be like, why are people so hard talking about race? We talk about race and everything. And now I'm like, I understand. Some of this history is, I mean, okay, Tuskegee, yeah, a lot of people are finding out about, but we're just also learning about the race riots right in Tulum, right? Mm-hmm. Which are just, people are talking about Black Wall Street, Tulsa, sorry, I said Tulum. Uh, <laughs> Tulsa and Black Wall Street and the riots there. I mean, that history is hard for me to read. I'm like, I understand why mm-hmm. people got, you know, so quiet. But really, I mean, it's interesting because initially people want you to think like, oh, all these black people are dying. It's because it's uh, all these racist stereotypes, like welfare, they're poor, bad health, uneducated. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you look at the statistics and that a black woman who has uh, a college degree is more likely to die giving birth in America than a white woman with a high school uh, diploma, Mm-hmm. You're, you begin to ask uh, what's wrong. But the interesting thing is, um, and it's an important point that I, I make in the book, but I sometimes forget myself, is that the system is functioning. It's functioning mm-hmm. exactly how it's meant to. Mm-hmm. And that in America is about white life, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Healthcare yeah. in America is very white. And I don't think they ever expected or cared or thought that, you know, we're supposed to be dealing with so many different kinds of people of color. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there was a study in 2016 from the University of Virginia that said half of medical professionals hold really outdated racist beliefs. Doctors Mm -hmm. in America about people of color and pain, especially black people in pain, that Mm -hmm. their um, skin is thicker and their Mm -hmm. nerve endings don't feel as much pain. So this is 2016. That yeah. leads the doctors not only not believing their patients, but under treating them, you know, not diagnosing them correctly. Black people a lot of times are considered um, mm-hmm. thought of as drug addicts, right? Trying to get. Um, yeah. So really racist, stereotypical stuff. And then you're just like, no, the numbers tell a very different story. Yeah. So that's another thing the pandemic exposed, which is it's racism, not race. You know, that's yeah. killing people of color when they entered the the healthcare system in America. Yeah, I've, uh, you know, I've read so many books, uh, just, you know, on biases and, you know, so many things that we don't even realize are happening. I've got a lot of authors on here talking about it. And I just, I don't know if people are, aren't educated about. Well, I also think it's our language. I'm glad that you Mm. said that because for a really long time, I didn't understand what implicit bias was. I'm like, wait, so like, yeah, I get it. Like we all have prejudices. We all have biases. Okay. But now I'm like, oh, is that just a polite way of saying something is racist? Because a word has a problem in America, right? Like racism mm-hmm. needs a rebrand. White people get so, I have looked at this the hard way, so defensive and so closed up when you bring it up. And it's like they, white people decide in America what's racist and what is and what's offensive yeah. and what isn't. And only recently in the past year have I started saying to people, why would you say that's not racist? Do you yeah. know? Have you ever experienced it? Do you know what it's like? Mm-hmm. So I don't think that all racist people are KKK. But I yeah. think, I'll, I'll yeah, that. there's a there's a there's a spectrum of it. Right. And I think, you know, like I so I think, you know, on this specific topic, like I think, you know, the, the person who always comes to mind is Robin D'Angelo. Right. So last year I read her book, White Fragility. I didn't even know people I didn't like her and stuff. And then I was like, OK, that makes sense. Right. Then I read her new book, Nice Racism and stuff. And I started researching and talking <laughs> to people. And like there's definitely like I, I think any book, like I've read over 300 books this year. There's always stuff that I disagree yeah, with. Yeah, who are you? I you, you are like <laughs> my grill in my next life. I wouldn't be a voracious reader like that. Yeah, I, I'm an I'm an audio listener. And, oh, yeah. oh, <laughs> and, oh that's I, I have a lot of activities to do, but 
But like, even with even with the areas where I disagree with uh, Robin D'Angelo, when I look when I look at you know the book White Fragility, I immediately just think defensive, uh, being defensive, being denial, right? And for some reason, for some reason, people who argue against the book they look at that and they're like, me, me get defensive. I would never get defensive. We get defensive in so many things. Like a, a joke I always make is my son and uh, and I, we like to cook and we'll cook for my girlfriend. She's not really a cook, but it's cool. I like to cook. Me and my son, we, yeah. we get down. And if she doesn't like something, I get defensive. So like we all get defensive about our work. I'm sure like with your writing, I'm a writer. When people yeah. critique me, I'm like, you know, I'm going to have to dial yeah. it down. I'm not but, like, er, I'm more like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But why, why do you think like, why do you think people are so resistant to thinking that you know, oh, me, there's no way that this could yeah. ever, you know, like, why do we get defensive? Why, why, why do you think people don't, I don't know. Is it, is it not wanting to grow? Is it not wanting to recognize it? Is it not wanting to give up maybe certain question. aspects of privilege? I don't know. Yeah. Privilege do is a big one. Um, well, honestly, I get it. I get it, I guess. But I'm not <laughs> kind of like the godfather, you know, like, I want to know bad news right away. I want to talk about it, analyze it, and fix it. Yeah, that's yeah. what I say about in the book. Like, if we can't, and it's understandable that everything in America comes down to race, mm-hmm. but everything. <laughs> People ask me, "How oh, do you think everything is racist?" And you make everything about race. I'm like, it is in America because you got to go back to slavery, right? Mm-hmm. How the country was founded. Why were these systems made? The Constitution, which let's not forget, did not recognize, right? African Americans as as mm-hmm. all human beings. I think there were three fifths of, of a person. Um, I think it's I think it's human nature, but I'm also so over it. Like I'm 41, <laughs> and I'm just like it can't just be about other people's feelings. Mm-hmm. But I think that people of color haven't controlled the narrative for a really long time. Like a lot of times, I'm like, why are we only now? Like you know the the standard for health at the mm-hmm. NIH is a middle aged white man. The mice are even male. You know, there was one point where I was interviewing a doctor and she said, where are the female mice? Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's a widespread, systematic, systemic problem. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why people are so defensive. Yeah. You know? It's yeah. like you can't tell a guy when he's, you know, there's a big stereotype of what guys don't like giving directions when they're driving, can't admit when they're <laughs> lost. Uh, white people are like, well, it's not my fault. My thing now is like, don't make it personal. Like, don't take it personal. Yeah, yeah. It's, I can't believe I'm saying that because I take rejection very personal. <laughs> right. It's always like, why do you take rejection personal? It's just business. I'm like, oh my God, rejection is so personal. <laughs> yeah. But I guess it's like that. People just take it personally when it's not. But I guess, you know, yeah. uh, when I talk about Bangladesh's independence, Pakistanis get really offense- uh, defensive. It's kind yeah. of an Armenian genocide situation where one country's entire identity was based yeah. on a war or a genocide and the other side wasn't taught about it. Like, yeah, I, I think it's a lie. <laughs> yeah, I love reading books, like especially with all the polarization, just about, you know, tribalism and group identity. You know, there's oh. so many things because they're just ingrained in us. But I, I don't think we can address those issues until we either A, learn about them or, you know, B, just at least recognize them or C, hopefully, you know, both. But, but you it's know, so shocking. Like sometimes I'm just like, I had somebody ask me once because the Pakistani Bangladeshi thing, you know, that's very contentious. Same yeah. with the Armenian. Uh, Turk genocide, and it, you know it'll be like I have these amazing Turkish friends. We all went to UB together, and they're they're so amazing and progressive. You bring up that 
a bad genocide and they'll be like that is a lie you know that's something yeah. that armenians have and it's the same thing that that pakistanis do so sometimes i feel like there is a conscious effort not to remember these things I mean, look what happened with the 1619 project the mm-hmm. new york times and nikki jones right with like duke university what was it chapel hill i think i don't, I don't Ended know up going to howard um but anyway just about What's happening with critical race theory? People don't even know what it is, and they're pissed. <laughs> yeah, like, I've, I've, I've honestly never heard of. Taught at school. Yeah, and I've never heard really... of it until this year. Honestly, <laughs> I had Tim Wise on my podcast. He is like a specialist on this, and it's it was so funny because having I mean, it's so academic. I'm like, most people have no idea what they're mad about. They really yeah. don't. But I saw a meme that was kind of funny, but I thought it really hit the nail on the head, and it was a white woman, you know, screaming at a black woman during school integration. And the meme said that critical race theory is basically your grandmother being mean, racist towards black people, but not wanting you to know about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Not wanting you to be taught, uh, taught it at school. And I think that's accurate. Yeah. 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 It's, it, yeah it's really interesting, especially as a father. I, you know, my son's 12 and I've, I've been thinking about this stuff. I've had some authors and discussing it and, and, and things like that. And, you know, there's there's so many things where, you know, I, I just think it's important to realize, like, there's so many different communities and groups, like, you know, uh, like, we're talking about different countries, like, what's going on, you know, uh, and Afghanistan has come up lately, too, and we hear about Jerusalem, and I'm trying to understand, or Israel, I'm trying to understand about the, I'm, I'm trying to learn about all these things, yeah. because it's like the same candy, different wrapper all over the place, but... All over the place. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's why I try to, I think I try great, to get down to, like, human nature. Metaphor. Yeah. You know, I because I'm just like, huh, there's something in us because we're we're we're, we're all over the world. They're doing the same thing. You know what it is? It's it's our ego, right? Mm-hmm. It is our ego, and it's yeah. massive, and uh, it's huge, especially for white people. <laughs> it really is. I think when you because you know what people are still debating white privilege, right? But for the rest of us. Mm-hmm. I mean, you probably have such an interesting point of view on it because you said you're half black, half white. So you have yeah. black relatives, but you probably pass as white. Yeah, no, 1000%. And like this stuff, I almost feel undercover sometimes. Like I've had some people say some racist ass shit around me. Oh, and then I tell them, yeah. and the, you know, I, I wish I could just like start recording and maybe like a TikTok I series. You can. The things yeah. they say when they're comfortable. Yeah. yeah. Oh my God. It, it has happened to me because I'm Muslim. And sometimes mm. you think I'm Latina. Oh. And oh my gosh, I mean, it's not so bad now, but you know, the years of Islamophobia, especially post 9 11, I would just be like, excuse me, you cannot speak about Arabs like that. Yeah. Arabs, because it became like all Arabs were Muslim, Arabs, yeah. right? And, yeah. Oh I was, uh, yeah, I was having a conversation the other day and we were talking about, you know, when looking at privilege, like I think people get really defensive about that as well, but you know, there's, we're, we're so many different things, right? Like, you know, uh, there's, there's my race, but there's also my upbringing. There's also, you know, what I know, like my education, education. is a, is a privilege. And I've had, you know, people on here. Cause I think the whole idea of meritocracy is pretty pretty like not accurate and like, you know what I mean like there's a lot of luck involved and people don't realize it but we need to take a step back like and and just kind of address it but you know speaking speaking of privilege like going back to like just women as a whole like there's a privilege of being a man because like you said there's a lot of studies conducted on men and I think it was in your book where 
or, or I was hearing it somewhere. Well, anyways, like side effects of maybe the vaccine or something like that. Like women are having issues with like their menstrual cycles. And this wasn't something that was researched or talked about or they didn't dive into it and stuff like yeah. that. But um, I think one of the, the the things I've been thinking about a lot too is just not only are they not really studying stuff, you know, around like medications affecting women, but there's the whole conversation around like the, the whole abortion stuff going on in Texas, right? And you say something in that book and I'm like, Yes, like mothers are often like their their life isn't the priority in oh, yeah. a lot of situations. And I was like, yeah, and that blows my mind. So yeah. so how is how is this affecting, you know, the healthcare system and women where yeah. the, the mother's life isn't a priority? But I also guess like, how do we balance that out? Because you have your your personal experience with your birth. My son was born via emergency C-section and it came out all right. He was in the NICU, but I can only imagine when I was reading your story, I'm like, I'd be losing my shit. You know? so, yeah. so how is this affecting women in healthcare with not being like the priority of, you know, the yeah. mother's life? That's such a great question. Uh, it mm -hmm. hurts my heart even hearing it. And it's kind of the central question. Uh, of my life and work. But the answer is, is it's not just a mother. Like women's lives don't matter. Mm. Women's health is not a priority. And in America, you really, you know, Chrissy Turlington always says this, Turlington Burns, who's huge and amazing maternal health advocate mm -hmm. and the founder of Every Mother Counts, but that in America, um, I think it was Dr. Rebecca who said that. Anyway, we have kind of, we call it the badass maternal health task force uh, whenever we work together. But that a, a, a pregnant woman is seen like as a candy wrapper, right? We just want to get to the candy. And then mm. we throw the wrapper away. But the wrapper is the woman's life. And it's, uh, in America, it's across, it's not just for abortion. It's for everything. It's for why women were initially left out completely of the COVID trials, the vaccine mm -hmm. trials, the most anticipated vaccine of our freaking lifetime. Like this pisses me off so much because everything I say in the book happened in real time. Mm. But they were like, we don't want to test on pregnant women. The baby, the baby, which has been happening for so long. And apparently, I think aside from the smallpox vaccine, which could cause some issues, uh, with the fetus, every other vaccine in the history of the world has been fine for pregnant women. And of course, a year later, they're like, oh, it's fine. The COVID vaccine is fine, too. We basically tested on pregnant women, you know, in an uncontrolled environment because we told everybody just to fend for themselves. Um, but it was because of, uh, of, you know, concerns over the fetus. So it was it's always about something other than the woman's life is never the priority. Yeah. And when I ask, how did we get here? Why are we here in the richest country in the world? Most medical expertise in the world. Mm -hmm. Women have been giving births in the dawn of time. We know, yeah. we know it's yeah. incredibly dangerous, but we also know where to intervene, right? Uh, yeah. But in America, everything is a business and it's become the business of giving birth. Yeah. Hospitals want conception. Then you know what? They're running the way they're supposed to be. Yeah. I mean, their hospitals are businesses. They are businesses. Why wouldn't they want to make a $50,000 C-section than have a woman be in labor for like 30, mm -hmm. 40 hours? That's another thing. People don't know. It's not like in the movies. Your stomach doesn't just bust and the baby doesn't come out. You're in labor. I was in labor for 33 hours. I was pushing for three. But hospitals don't want that. It's a pain in the ass. You're taking up a room. You're taking, you know, they want you yeah. out. Yeah. Um, but even though I had two C-sections, no one ever told me that that is a major surgery. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's common surgery. Uh, in America for women, uh, but it is, um, nobody told me that, that it's such an invasive surgery because most women go back to work in two weeks, right? Yeah. And 
the things women don't talk about because we know we're not believed um, are fascinating. I mean, I had no idea I was going to be bleeding for like six weeks after postpartum. Mm-hmm. I took me like almost a year and a half to get full feeling back in my stomach. Yeah, it's and it's, it's so weird. It's so weird too because I remember when uh, my son's mom, when we were together and she was pregnant. I remember sitting there and we we actually learned a little bit about the invasiveness of a C-section. Like we didn't think like it was nothing like we didn't think it was going to happen. It was an emergency C-section. But just from the baby classes, from seeing her go through the pregnancy to seeing her post C-section and knowing like a C-section involves them like cutting you open and like moving your muscles. I'm sitting there and and so and, like, you know, so many women, you know, they have, you know, husbands and, you know, or, or someone there, there's a lot of women who don't, but like, I'm sitting there, I'm just like, like the empathy in me just went sky high. I'm just like, I am never, I'm never <laughs> in my life going to have to go through this. So when I hear about these things and like, not, you know, not caring or not recognizing it or not, yeah. you know, I'm just like, how is that possible? No. How do you not see, no. you know, especially like the woman you love or whoever it is yeah. go through this or or just knowing that your own mother went through some stuff like this and not have some empathy and be like, wow, yeah. let's, let's figure some stuff out at that. I think that just, you know, just think about like compassion and just trying to, you know, yeah. be a decent human. Most people don't have that. Most people yeah. don't have that because I honestly don't understand why we don't, why pregnancy and childbirth and even like women's menstrual, menstrual cycles every month, everything mm. with women's health has so much shame and dirt and filth. Uh, associated with it i feel mm-hmm. like we should be worshiping women yeah <laughs> yeah just become a matriarchy like i am shocked you know i am yeah. shocked and what we endure um and i feel like if men could get pregnant i mean oh my god they would get like paid time off for their periods abortions at every atm or like abortions <laughs> at or something like it would just but the the pain that we're that we're expected to live with and Another important point I want to make before I forget is there's a reason I'm always, I come back to maternal health all the time mm-hmm. because maternal health is not just about maternal health and maternal mortality is not just about the number of women dying in childbirth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course it tells us that, but it's an indicator for how a country's health system is running. It's an indicator for women's overall position in society. So why is this happening in, in America when I have seen and personally worked on American state motherhood initiatives, which have been implemented overseas. And I mean, it's, it, it, it made and Bangladesh slash our maternal uh-huh. mortality by 40%. But in America, it's rising because it doesn't matter. And no yeah. one is listening to these women. It doesn't matter. You're considered a number and yeah. you're considered a statistic. And I, and I always say in the book, because Every woman knows has a story. We know somebody who died or, you know, mm-hmm. it almost happened to us or something. And, you know, I say these stories and, and I hear these stories and every woman's life counts. Yeah. Every woman's life, it really counts. Like she was somebody. We yeah. always say she was a mother, someone's daughter, someone's wife. And I'm always like, how about she was somebody? She was yeah. a person. Women are still even in death, uh, defined by our world in in society. Oh, she was a great mom or she was such a good daughter. No, I was a person. So I always want to know the stories behind those numbers. Because it's very easy to be like, oh, 70 women died per 100,000 deaths. That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. And you you talk, you know, one of the 
One of the, uh, I think, lesser-known illnesses that you talk about in the book, too, is endometriosis, which I am I'm far too familiar with, but it's just, it's normal really? for me because my, uh, my best friend, who I've grown up with, she has struggled with endometriosis, as well as, uh, like, uh, different forms of cancer that have come and gone. So yeah. she's, you know, she actually had to move to California for like, God, I think like 10 years because there was a specialist out there. She just recently moved back here to Vegas. But anyways, I'm very familiar with it. But yeah. as I'm learning, I'm like, oh, a lot of people don't know about yeah. endometriosis, how many, you know, uh, women really it affects. Diagnosis too. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, I think about the pain she goes, uh, she goes through, you know, uh, issues with her cycles and everything. And I'm just like, and there's not that many solutions aside from the diagnosis and all that too. It's it's not curable, but it's very treatable. Endometriosis, mm -hmm. I've never had it, but if there was a, I don't want to say an illness, but a disorder, I guess, an illness. Yeah. Uh, A diagnosis that kind of embody a disease that could kind of embody the entire book. Or be the personification of the pain gap, it would be endometriosis. Yeah, yeah. It sounds Most it sounds stories brutal. of women. I don't even understand what kind of pain. Dismissed. It's very hard to diagnose. Padma mm-hmm. for 20 years was told that she doesn't have this bad period cramps, that she has a low threshold. Yeah. That specialist after specialist, no one knows what's wrong. Finally, she gets diagnosed with stage four endometriosis. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you know what, fuckers? Pardon my French. No, go for it. <laughs> she's like, I actually have a really high threshold for pain. But yeah. she did the math of all the time she's lost in her life. Um, because every two or three weeks, every month, she would be in yeah. bed, debilitating pain. So, you know, now she's starting, I think she's, you know, doing work with MIT. Mm. And she's become a real advocate. And you just think, like, even fame, power doesn't protect women. I mean, look what happened to black women like Serena Williams or Beyonce in their mm-hmm. childbirth. I mean, Serena Williams, what, peak physical? I mean, I don't even know. I, I'm so far from her peak physical. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know the word for it, but she, her, she, a big part of her job is knowing her body, right? Yeah. And she, she was like, I am clotting. I need blood thinners. I need a CT scan after her. Yeah. Birth and no one believed her. She coughed so much, her C-section stitches came came out. Mm-hmm. You know, and she, I mean, it's it's just so interesting because there's a quote in the book about how black women, when you enter the healthcare system, they can't imagine you being com- competent, so they render mm-hmm. you incompetent and then deal with you accordingly. But yeah. Williams was basically like, you know, she, she could have died. And sure enough, when they listened to her, they found her, you know, she was clotting around her lungs, all this stuff. So, yeah. And that brought so much attention to maternal mortality in America. Yeah. Uh, Williams almost. And then Beyonce too, when she was having her twins. Yeah. So, But you know, it's funny. I wrote the book and then even I had a moment with Beyonce. I was like, really? No, Beyonce yeah. too? Yeah. Yeah, humanizes them. And that's, that's like something it wasn't I, that bad. Yeah. And that's something I see, you know, all the time because my, my advocacy is largely around like mental health and addiction and everything. And, but we see it in all areas where 
it's it's awful but again like thank thank goodness like when it when it happens to a celebrity now we got a spotlight on it right like whenever there's like a celebrity overdose or suicide yeah. now let's talk about the mental yeah. health care system in america or you know serena or whoever yeah people realize because um initially i was like gosh black maternal health forever is going to be associated with the serena williams story and then i'm like that is so great <laughs> yeah because it really makes a difference when you bring up that example or yeah. or even that story because it just goes to show it's it's incredible how many people say it to me uh even after writing this book that maybe it was just her maybe this one bad apple just like with police brutality right just one bad cop yeah um, but that's another thing uh, that, you know, Wes Lowry said this to me, and it's so, it's so true, which is you can't look at these as individual stories. If you look at them as individual stories, and sure, yeah, maybe it just happened to this one person. You have to look at it collectively. Yeah, and then yeah. the data backs you up. So it's, it's crazy. People say it to me still, even after this book, are you sure? And I'm like, I literally just wrote a book on it. Yeah. Are you trying to, I don't know, what are you trying to tell me that I missed something yeah. here? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, something I, I, I personally do because I'm always trying to like vet, you know, information and stuff because, you know, you have to. That with so have many, But like I, you know, if I see like an anecdotal story, then I zoom out. I'm like, OK, let me find some statistics and stuff because you got to like zoom in. Then you got to zoom out yeah. and see and get like yeah. kind of an idea. But, you know, some people, yeah. it's like too much effort for them and you know, or whatever. Most people don't want to know. Most people yeah. are so busy. But it was funny because I, I, I don't think I planned as much research uh, as. I ended up doing in the book, but also so many major studies came out last year about, you know, mm-hmm. America and public health in America. Um, I didn't expect as much research, but um, it happened so naturally in the book. It was just like women's stories, study, women's stories, study. Yeah, I like and that combination that you you had in there. It happened on its own. It was really like a, a rhythm that found on its own because I think it's the truth. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, yeah, this, you know, I should have probably asked you this at the beginning, but I wanted to save it because I'm going to ask you something that might, that's going to dive into some controversial territory. But I was like, I think you're the perfect person to ask about this. So by any, by any chance, have you read, have you read the book Invisible Women? No, but it's come up so much. To yeah, me. that's He's when I finally read it data. recently. Yeah. Yeah. It's all I about the data. I just a review yeah. from Library Journal that said, our books would be uh, paired yeah. well together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I saw it. I was thinking about it because I actually just finally read it. Like so many people were like, read it, read it, read it. I'm like, okay, I did. And yeah, a lot it. of it's around data, but there's a few chapters in there specifically dedicated to healthcare. But they talk about, you know, like medical trials and things like that. And, you know, women's bodies are different and, you know, yeah. all these things. So where it gets a little controversial is this, right? Like I am all for, you know, like, uh, like trans rights and everything like that. And you just see so much debate and co- not even debate, but just like outrage and controversy. People are having difficulty having these discussions around like biologically male or biologically yeah. female. But when I read books like yours, and this is why I thought you'd be perfect to ask, when we're talking about women's health care, like what do you think we need to take in con- into consideration? Because, you know, at, like while being empathetic to those communities and their health care and what they need, Right. But also not neglecting women's health care, because yeah. if we, it feels to me that if we disregard some of these biological aspects, we're going to yeah. have an even bigger issue on our hands. So 
Yeah. Or like that to know really, your thoughts. Huge. Wow. Why don't you just ask me my opinion on I don't know? <laughs> I told you we we're going to get controversial. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what is more controversial than this? Well, you know what? It's interesting because this is, um, I actually had my high school AP English teacher who I love and then still talk to like every other day. But she mm-hmm. was editing the manuscript with me before I actually had to turn it into my publishers. And she had a big problem with this. She was like, why are we saying birthing people? It should be birthing women. Like, what are we talking about? And then yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. And I kind of, I hey, I'm kind of old too. So I had to look up. And uh, yes, why we say birthing people now. And I think, I mean, I really... I really, I have such a human rights approach to to all of it, you know, with trans rights, LGBTQ. I just feel like, yeah, trans women are women. Mm-hmm. And this whole thing of, oh, if we, get, if we put trans in taking away attention from, no, really? Maybe mm-hmm. it needs to be bigger. Why are we like an afterthought? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if that, that answers your question, but that is basically my, my thing. I mean, people who consider themselves women and this is how it affects me. Who are we mm-hmm. to say no? You go to that bathroom. <laughs> yeah. So all yeah, like all that stuff, like a thousand percent agree. I guess like if I had to make a scenario, right? There's a new medication out. We're only testing it on men, right? And yeah. you come along and you go fight. You're in DC. You go down there and you're like, hey, mother yeah. efforts, we need to test this on women. You know, yeah. whatever. Like if you know, if a trans woman, you know, even like you know, pre-transition, like medically, yeah, like. D- is there do you think there's a concern that that's gonna that's gonna skew the data or the effects because they haven't no biologically changed enough or, that's mm-hmm. a great question and i don't think it will because we're already not testing on women <laughs> we're just testing on men mm. it's much cheaper to not test on women not only because of our hormones but because yes if i'm mm. pregnant or get pregnant you have to also consider uh the how the drug or whatever you're testing on is affecting the fetus Mm. so it wasn't actually i think until 1996 1991 that the nih that it was even alerted to that the nih has not been testing on women it didn't get any better it didn't improve i think in 2016 or 2018 we had a mandate that said that any research money that the NIH get has to also test on women and female mices, but that's still not uh, being done. I think there was a review done just last year that's improving in certain areas, uh, but not everywhere. And it's because initially people were really worried about, um, what's it called when you're in the pregnancy, childbirth, childbirth years. Mm. Uh, that you know women who were in their reproductive years shouldn't be included. oh yeah but eventually what happened was that all women were excluded because it's cheaper yeah but that affects everything i mean you want to talk about testing i mean ambien they found out in 2018 after ambien was already on the market that women take eight hours longer to metabolize to not process the medicine but metabolize the medicine mm. so it wasn't safe for women to be driving but they were driving Jeez. and getting into these accidents. So then they had to pull Ambien out. So it, it's not just, oh, they're not testing on us and we're pissed. It's you're not testing on us and it affects our health. Yeah. So I understand where you're going. Like, oh, there might not be enough for us. But it sounds, I feel like that's a part of the same puzzle as, oh, come to America. But then what will we have left? <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah. don't worry. We're already not being included. It's yeah. already not in, in, inclusive. Yeah. So yeah. So there's there's some bigger issues that we, we need to work. Bigger issues yeah. We start nitpicking on like trans yeah. people or LGBTQ people. So, but but it's yeah. interesting that you brought that up because I feel like along with ego, that's a very human response, right? Like, what about us? I mean, I think mm-hmm. it happened 
um, in America during the pandemic when everybody ran for the paper towels and toilet paper. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're in a league of our own, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Every person for their, and you know, people in Bangladesh ask me that, why was it toilet paper? I mean, when shit hits yeah. the fan, no pun intended, are you going to eat that? Yeah, yeah, like hand sanitizer makes sense, beans. but. Oh, like right beans thing that will last, right, forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But I don't know about the toilet paper. That was crazy. But then guess what? We ran out. Yeah. Yeah, we we were actually, we were fortunate because my girlfriend's aunt, like, just, she buys in bulk. So, like, right when everything went crazy. Ready. Yeah, she was ready and she gave us stuff. But uh, since I only have a little bit more of your time. I want to I wanna leave people with something that they could do. And, like, in the book, in the book, I, I love how you dedicate. Like, I, I love any book that ends with some solutions. But for any women listening to this, because it's going to take time. It always takes it always takes time for the government to freaking do anything. Like, what if there's a woman listening to this and they're like, "Yes, there are issues and stuff." What are some like tips for women to advocate for themselves, or with like, is there a sign that they should be seeing like a new doctor, or hmm. give them something that they can walk away with before they pick up your amazing book? Just maybe they uh -huh. have a doctor's appointment awesome. tomorrow or something. Well, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in the book um, that I actually highlighted steps you can do because I am someone who's very solution oriented, and this is a, an issue that has a solution. Um, one of the most important things I want to tell all women is that we kind of approach our healthcare as the doctor being the most important person oh. in in that in decisions about our health but we should really approach it as a team effort everybody has a role but the most important person is actually us so tell your doctor what you know your family history this is this is advice that has made a huge difference for my own health and my family's health recently because mm. i just I give them more information, I ask them more questions, and guess what? This is something I didn't know. If you don't like your doctor, you can change your provider. Yeah. I wish somebody had told me this. Women, we really try to be the perfect patient. We really do. We try to be the perfect patient, the perfect student, the perfect mom, the perfect wife, because we're told by society. And I just want to tell you that there's no such thing as the perfect patient. I tried to be her. Mm -hmm. I tried to be her. That is that is the reason I didn't misbehave with that doctor who tried to make me prove my pain to him when I was, you know, I had a baby trying to come out and I was in labor for 33 hours, whatnot. Um, mm -hmm. So there's no such thing as a perfect patient. And um, you can always change your doctor. And this is something very sexist, but a lot of women have told me works bringing somebody with you. Mm. Most often a male, either your boyfriend, your husband, or even a friend, a male witness really helps push. And even statistically, I hate suggesting this. And there's a lot of feminists that I speak with in the book who have said so many that this is what they've heard. If you bring a man with you, more yeah. likely to be believed by the doctor. Unfortunately, it's still true. Maya Dusenberry who's done amazing work on this topic, actually said that when I was interviewing her. And we were both like, oh, it's the most depressing to even utter yeah. but apparently very effective <laughs> yeah yeah and sometimes yeah and that you know that's what sucks and you know sometimes we just we have to do what we have even to do female doctor it's not just like oh bring a man yeah. to another meeting but yeah you you are an act we're not passive voices in our health we're mm -hmm. very active and we should speak up we should give ourselves a little bit more confidence like that's what i say let's flip our hysteria complex it's made us stay quiet for so long let's use it now to use our voice and speak up and say, I'm in pain. It matters. I'm mm -hmm. not imagining it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. Yeah. People need to get, 
get better at advocating for themselves and for yourself we are yeah. just advocate you know it's cheesy but it's true and we need to be told it happens to me too it happens to me almost on a daily basis where i'm like okay i'm listening and then i'm like actually i will and <laughs> i'm a mom like I, you know i have to do this now with my kids doctors you know yeah. every day i was yep. like that doesn't really makes sense i'll go home and google it and then i was like oh i'm gonna ask you <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. That's so it, it gives you training when you advocate for yourself, you start advocating for people around yeah, you and your kids and all that. Kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, I, mean, I I love the book and I said it in my review, I'll say it again. I think it is such an important book because so many books I've read just kind of, they kind of like mention this stuff and then they kind of move along. So I'm glad you dedicated a whole book. So we're <laughs> recording this before the book's out. Can you let everybody know the launch date and will it be released international or are there separate dates for it American? It is available globally through Amazon. Mm. It is going to be released October 26th and it's available now for pre-order everywhere. Barnes and Noble, Amazon. I know a lot of people are trying to boycott Amazon. Um, your local indie store, Audible, it's available uh, for pre-order everywhere and out October 26th. And if you're local to DC, Politics and Prose does have very special extra copies for our mm. uh, uh sorry early copies not extra copies for our virtual event which is on sunday with jill palopovich soraya shamali jill and yeah jill is awesome can She's i down here a while ago so yeah yeah can i tell you when i grow up i want to be jill even though i think i'm a little <laughs> more of the book too but she's she's one of those writers and she writes something i'm like oh i love it oh i wish i wrote it <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely Joe's great but but you you're you you write a lot too so like uh i follow you on twitter where's the best place for people to follow you keep up to date with this and when you're like hey it's time for me to write another book where can people keep up with <laughs> your work and all that follow me on twitter you can check out my website anushayhussain.com but best to stay up with me on twitter at anushayhussain and also on instagram you Ooh. will find me you know chatting uh all over the place so yeah Ooh. Awesome. Well, thank you so much thank for coming so on. And yeah, I hope your book has a lot of success. It was great. So, so yeah, we'll, we'll do this again sometime, I'm sure. Definitely. And my podcast is going to be back, I hope, in January. So I took a mini hiatus because I knew this book release months would be a little. But I'm going to have you on Spilling Chai as well. We have Ooh. to spill the tea together. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Thanks so much, Chris. Thanks for having me. I'll talk to you soon. All right, everybody, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Anusha about her book, The Pain Gap. And yeah, like I said, she is she's just so passionate about this topic. And, you know, there's so many issues like we've talked about, you know, racism. And earlier this week, you know, uh, I had on Kathleen Bellew about her book on, uh, you know, white supremacy and all this. So many of these things like intertwine and overlap and they're seeping into one another. And one of them is is healthcare. And like, like I said, you know, I, I have, you know, been fortunate enough to have female friends. So I'm, you know, right there. And I, I learn about these, you know, health issues that they're dealing with. And it's crazy reading a book like Anusha's and seeing how, how much it's affecting women on a larger scale you know, uh, in the United States. So please, please, please do yourself a favor. Make sure you head down to the link, uh, uh, the description below and follow Anusha over on Twitter, grab a copy of this book, but yeah, after you read the book, like make sure you're keeping up with her work because she's covering this stuff and bringing more attention to it. And hopefully we can make some changes within the system and hopefully healthcare professionals are, you know, learning about this and understanding this so that we can provide better care for women, you know, in the United States and hopefully some of this stuff goes to, you know, other places around the world where they're having issues like this as well. All right. 
So yeah, before I let you go, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. And if you want to help out the podcast, really, really simple things you can do. First, make sure you're following the podcast and you're subscribed, whether it's on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, whatever it is, make sure you're following and subscribe. Next, this episode, super, super, super important episode. So if you enjoyed this episode, if you think anybody else might benefit from it, share it on social media. But the same goes with any of the topics that we cover here. All right. And lastly, if you could head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and review. All that stuff really helps out. It helps us reach a bigger audience so more people can get involved in these bigger conversations, find some you know awesome new books that are covering some important topics. All right. So uh, yeah, last thing, if you are interested, there's an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, you know, mental health is something that I'm passionate about. It's something that, you know, I'm constantly working on for myself. BetterHelp Online Therapy is something that I have personally used. And, you know, speaking of healthcare, our healthcare system, mental healthcare system isn't all that great, but BetterHelp is affordable and you can use it from the comfort of your own home. You work with a licensed therapist from your state. It's a great, great service. So if you want to check that out, use that affiliate link down below. Basically, all that means is that you get some affordable therapy and a little bit comes back to support the podcast. All right. So another huge, huge thanks to Anusha for coming on, for writing such a great book. Make sure you head down to the description, grab a copy. And yeah, thanks so much for listening. Stay tuned. We've got a couple more episodes for you this week. Tomorrow, we're going to be talking about some of the psychology behind science denial. And on Friday... We have John McWhorter to talk about his brand new book as well, all right? So have an amazing rest of your day, and I'll see you next time.